The Guardian. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes creating a professional website for your business, personal brand or portfolio so easy it's newsworthy. Go to squarespace.com and use the offer Guardian to get 10% off. Mumble, 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 mumble. That's right, it's a Jamaica Inn special on this week's Media Talk. Also on the show, Susanna Reid gets set to say good morning Britain on ITV. But will you be saying good morning to Susanna Reid? Plus, former Daily Telegraph editor Tony Gallagher goes back to the Daily Mail and Discovery Communications drops out of the running to buy Channel 5. And we talk Fargo, The Trip and Derek with The Guardian's TV and radio editor Megan Connor. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. And joining me this week are Media Talk regulars, Radio Academy Chief Executive and much else besides Mr Paul Robinson and journalist and media commentator Maggie Brown. Welcome both. Thank Thank you. you. Try not to mumble. Try not to mumble. Indeed, you will both be enunciating beautifully, it says here, during the entirety of this podcast. Queen's English, nothing less. Never had any complaints about my estuary twang, uh, but not yet, but uh, do send them to... I haven't detected it, John. Oh, well, that's very kind, thank you. Uh, usual address. Uh, right, well, where better to start than BBC One drama Jamaica Inn, which at the time of recording had prompted nearly 800 complaints to the BBC from people who couldn't understand what on earth its cast of assorted ne'er-do-wells were talking about. The BBC blamed issues with the sound levels. Well, thanks, Einstein. And apparently they, they couldn't be sorted during the course of episode one in case everyone watching it thought the invisible man was messing around with their remote control. However, turning the volume up to 11, or at least six or seven, didn't entirely stop the complaints, with nearly 300 more people contacting the BBC after Tuesday night's second episode. All this comes a year after BBC Director General Tony Hall complained that actors don't speak clearly enough in TV drama. All of which makes this a peculiarly BBC fiasco. But just in case you're not sure of what all the fuss is about, and, well, maybe you're still trying to work out what they said, let's listen to a clip. Have you settled in, Miss Yellen? Harry. I'm Harry. It's a treat to have another pretty face about. Don't get many all the way out here. Tried to run off up the hill earlier. She didn't get the weather, did you, girl? Bogs out there's dangerous. Joss's brother Matthew got himself caught up in one. Bog was too deep to get across and pull him out. Watched him die. Uh, Maggie, this just makes it a, a, a sort of a, a peculiarly BBC drama, this whole thing. It does from start rather. to finish. It does rather, because of course uh, we do expect to be able to at least follow the plot or at least follow the dialogue. I had problems with it. I had problems last night. I turned the sound up pretty loud and I was trying to work out what had gone wrong. Philippa Lothorpe, the director of this, uh, is a very, very respected operator. She set the tone for Call the Midwife, for example. So I'm inclined to believe it is a mixture of a technical problem, but secondly, it's about the atmospheric nature of Jamaica Inn, which is very conspiratorial. Even in the book itself, it's dark, there's concealed and not-so-concealed evil, and there's, of course, this sort of very dark inn where mumbling uh, things go on which people are sort of semi over here so that there is something to be said for doing it in an authentic and of course there's also the sort of rural accent side to it too some serious but west country accents some serious on, yeah. west country which are from but i think there is definitely uh, more than a technical flaw i also think there's a strange lack of anybody from the bbc coming on air for example on the today program this morning the the, the problem was discussed and i was waiting to hear the controller of bbc one or the head of bbc 
BBC Drama or whoever come to the microphone and discuss it properly. And in fact, no one actually came from the BBC. We're just left with an anonymous BBC spokesman explaining that there was a technical problem, which I don't actually think is good enough. And saying just sound issues doesn't really get to the bottom of it either. And, and, and Paul, I, I hesitate to use the phrase, you know, uh, use reference the BBC Two sitcom W1A uh, without tiring everyone uh, to bits. But, you know, this is kind of straight out of W1A, isn't it? It, it totally is. And it's such a shame because the BBC is, you know, sort of shot itself in the foot with no need. I, I agree with Maggie. I also can't quite understand why nobody actually monitored this. I mean, every programme that goes on BBC One will have been viewed for compliance reasons. Um, when it's viewed, surely someone would have realised there was a problem with the recording because it can't just be on transmission because the programmes either side had no problem. So there must be something wrong with the, the sound recording actually on the, uh, I was going to say tape, obviously it'll be a digital file um, and it should have been picked up before it got to this stage and I certainly can't understand why the second episode wasn't sorted out having had all the complaints after the first episode so it seems to me that this is a case of the BBC not really taking this seriously enough and, and certainly Maggie's right if no one's prepared to even comment on it you know they, they've sort of been caught slightly unawares and, and really should have um, uh, been much more across this particularly after Tony Hall made such a high profile yes, it speech. It gives the impression actually everybody's on holiday they're taking an extra day off. It, it gives the a sense holiday. of not There's being nobody's no one's seeing you around, no one really checking things, but also not a joined up approach. Mm. You know, I mean, if the Director General says no mumbling, then really that should be taken account of by those who actually are responsible for sound. And clearly it sounds like they haven't done. I think it is a mixture. I think there was a technical problem. I think it's also about an attempt to do an atmospheric piece that hasn't yes. ca- quite come off. But thirdly, there is a very beautiful aspect to this, which is that even if you're not listening or you can't hear what they're saying, the scenery of some of the Cornish coasts, and obviously I think it was also filmed in Yorkshire. Oh, the look is, of it is, was is, fantastic. It's just fantastic. Yeah. And I think that's why there's a big disappointment, because this is a much-loved Daphne du Maurier classic. The actors themselves, um, Matthew McNulty, uh, Jess Brown, Finley, they're all people we want to see. So it's just a big shame, really, that uh, we've been served up a bit of a sort of... Um, and, and a big showcase for the BBC. I mean, very heavily promoted. I mean, a lot of airtime given to this, you know, so expectation. I mean, pretty decent viewing figures, 6.1 million. I know, but the, it collapsed last but night. It collapsed last night, but I mean, the, the debut, very, very good. Um, it's an, a wasted opportunity, isn't it, you know, to, yeah. to showcase something really, really important. I think, actually, the Crimson Field isn't working as well as mm. I expected either. That's their sun- Sunday night drama. This is the World War One. Yes, I, I watched the first episode with uh, with enjoyment, actually, and I thought that they had another big hit on their hands. I thought it might have been a sort of call the midwife, given it's up against Endeavour, which or has been, which is ITV's uh, Morse prequel, which is very, very well executed on over on ITV. And, and all this at a time, Maggie, when the, when the the BBC Trust has got its BDI on BBC One Drama, has said in the past, you know, you need to you need to you need to do better, and may well do so again this year. Indeed, all I can say is really that we know that they can do better because we've seen some brilliant stuff on BBC Two and uh, there's a, a wonderful, uh, as far as I can tell, piece from Hugo Blick coming up later this summer, um, The Honourable Woman uh, and I went to a preview of that just before Easter and I thought it was fantastic. So yes, we know that the BBC can aspire and can do very, very good programmes. Okay, well we're from one, uh, one TV drama to another uh, and the launch next week of ITV's Good Morning Britain which is of course the replacement for the not entirely successful Daybreak. Now uh, Maggie and Paul, this, this programme's not one for sound bites, uh, so we're all uh, for serious, detailed, in-depth analysis of these issues. So you know, with that in mind, Good Morning Britain, hit or miss? Well, 
Good Morning Britain uh, as a title alone is not going to do it. I mean, what's going to matter, I think, is the thing that they haven't really talked about at all. It's, it's not about the money. And I don't think people are really going to not watch because someone's paid a large amount of money. Uh, what matters is, is there real chemistry on air? The thing that was great about Good Morning Britain and about TVM before it, when they got it right after the famous five, was those presenters had a real sense of empathy with the audience. You know, breakfast TV, I think, is a bit more like radio than other television because you're sort of inviting people into your house at the time when you're a bit more vulnerable you know lots of stuff going on in the house as people get ready to go and do what they're going to do for the day and you need a chemistry need a relationship and what matters is can these four people together you know work as a team and be welcoming as well as bringing good journalism to the nation in the morning so Eamon Holmes and uh, Anthea Turner don't remember 1994 to 96 they were disastrously ill-matched and it doesn't necessarily mean that they have to get on you have to kind of want to watch them and if you remember uh, Eamon Holmes famously called her Miss Tippy, Princess Tippy-Toes and um, Anthea disappeared. She'd heard what she called him, but yeah. carry on, Megan. No, so all, all I'm trying to say is that actually you, you, you want to, yes, you want to have interesting characters there. I think Susanna Reid stands a really good chance, but what really matters I'm is I'm a the big content. Susanna Reid fan. Huh? Yeah, me too. And I think what matters really is the content of the, of the programme. I mean, basically, since the beginning of 2010, this has been kicked around from one editor to oh, another... Yeah. It's been in a constant state of flux. And as we all know, Adrian Charles and uh, Christine Bleakley were recruited at vast expense in 2010 for three years and um, failed completely to... Uh, they did. Uh, but I think, it, I think you're right. It's also about the agenda. And I think you should go back to TVAM and, and GMTV. You know, Peter McHugh, who was a long-time editor of that programme, really knew how to structure an ITV-type morning programme as a contrast to what the BBC is doing. And I think since they've never quite hit their stride editorially you know when you watch sometimes you see items which are going on far too long um, there are major stories they don't seem to cover and it, it, it's sometimes a bit too sort of chatty and lacking any substance so I think the trick is they've got to have uh, a sense that you really come away knowing what the news agenda of the day is but also do it in a way that feels welcoming and feels friendly and warm and, and that's the trick they've got to pull women off. as well I mean it that's does. the whole point it's a commercial program uh, the BBC can appeal to anybody pensioners men whoever wants to to watch it they have to have a commercial reason so therefore Susanna Reid does I think capture the she does. sort of mumsy side but with glamour yeah. and then Ben Shepherd is uh, the, the team she's with are, are, it's wholesome are, are, are and acceptable and, and well on ITV I mean I've really really enjoyed the um, a Breakfast Wars programme on BBC Two which went out earlier this month I, I was watching it again last night and just chuckling away that one, was looking back at the days of oh, BBC Breakfast it was actually one uh, now I lived that because yeah. I actually went to the um, final day of, of TVAM uh, when it was closing down and you know Bruce Gingell ran you're simply the best and every single person who'd ever worked on uh, the program was flashed up on screen and then everybody just drowned their sorrows in champagne but his great achievement really was realizing that although people sat on sofas his his dictum was you know that the the knee bone has to be higher than the thigh bone in other words you had to sit upright and although you might appear to be on a sofa you were really in one way or another giving information. And so no slouching. No slouching. Uh, the other thing I thought was really, really interesting is that you'd have loved somebody to do uh, a big breakfast revival now. I mean, I think that that was the most extraordinary breakfast show of all. It certainly was the last one I watched with any yeah, regular. Yeah, between 92 and 2010. It went bring on back for Zig and a wonderful Zag. decade. Yes, bring back Zig and Zag. And if you remember, too, I mean, it was Bob Geldof and uh, Porter Yates. And I think the idea of having a house is also quite a good one because it's a metaphor for a place. You know, people can associate with it. Mm. Part of the problem with these studios 
windows is they could be anywhere you know there's mm. there's no sense it's not really like my living room or my kitchen but mm. if you give people a house like the big breakfast did, you sort of really buy into that concept i think it is like my living room is it yeah no it's not but don't forget last word on this but I mean, big breakfast was very good with chris evans and it was all, sort of vaguely good with johnny vaughan and, but you know with the wrong people it went down the dump of record, it went down it? very very fast in other media news this week tony gallagher's going back to the future that's right, the former Telegraph man was appointed joint deputy editor of the Daily Mail. It's eight years since Gallagher left the Mail, and three months since Gallagher was fired by the Daily Telegraph. Does this make him the hot tip to succeed Paul Dacre, when or if he ever steps down as Mail editor? Maggie, your thoughts, please. I thought it was a very sensible move by the Daily Mail. I think that he's proven himself as an extremely able editor. Remember, he did the stories about the MPs' expenses and many other investigations and he understands the Middle England newspaper buying public, I think, more than probably anybody else. Of course, it's going to raise questions about the succession because Roy Greenslade said in our uh, forecast for the year that he did expect that there would be a change of editor at the Mail, that Paul Dacre would leave this year. So everybody's teed up for it. The question is when it happens. And, of course, the, the Mail's gain, uh, Maggie, is, uh, is, is, the, is London restaurant Morrow's loss. Exactly. He was working as a sort of cook or chef there uh, because his great other passion, apparently, is, uh, is, is cooking. So I'm actually rather glad that he's not lost to the restaurant trade. We'll be, we'll be scrutinising the mail for every Morrow mention from now on, but of course, of course, that will be entirely above board. And finally, uh, for the first part of the show, we turn our attention to the on-demand TV revolution, which took a yet another step forward this week after Netflix announced quarterly streaming revenues of $1 billion. Um, here's some, uh, here are some fast facts, which uh, sound like the sort of things that Netflix viewers enjoy. Uh, members were up 72% on the same time last year. Uh, Netflix has got 48 million members worldwide. And it's also going to up the uh, monthly fees for new subscribers, which are currently um, $7.99 in the US. That's the bad news. And the even more bad news is that uh, the last time I tried that, it was a bit of a disaster by all accounts. Paul, it's hard. You know, Netflix is always it's the eternal uh, refrain of Netflix. But we get all those figures. But the one figure we don't get is uh, audience numbers. Yeah, I mean, and it's very hard to um, to know. And uh, the reality is the audience is probably quite small because, of course, by definition, they're all watching different things at different times. But 48 million is a very respectable number. You should put it in context, though. If you think about the markets they're in, which is principally the US, uh, the UK and France, number of TV homes is vastly more than that. So their penetration compared to, you know, Sky here or even to an American cable company is still quite small. Nevertheless, 48 million is a big number. And it just shows the rate at which people are moving to an on-demand world. Um, What's also fascinating is how they clearly feel that price now can be raised. Uh, People's desire for the services is great enough that they will pay more money. Um, Existing customers are protected, but how long before they get a price rise? Not long, I don't think. New customers have to pay a bit more, but they've obviously done the maths and they realise they will pay more. And and what's the money going to be used for? More original production. I think when we saw people like Amazon, Love Film and Netflix come into the market uh, before House of Cards, no one really expects, I think, the level of investment they're putting in it's still relatively small compared to what the bbc does for example but highly significant and clearly is driving their business so this is about generating more and more cash for more and more original investment uh, and they're going to use that to drive uh, further people to netflix what's also interesting i think is that there's been a lot of talk about people cutting cable in the us and and, uh, you know the so-called cord cutters but the reality is that most people who have netflix also have another pay service so they've already got sky or virgin media or whatever here in the uk 
they're adding Netflix as another way of enhancing their pay experience. So it seems as though it's actually uh, a win-win for everybody who's in the pay business at the moment. Yeah, Maggie, that's an interesting point because my, my perception of Netflix is, is that it's sort of a it's a bonus ball. You know, you get that on top of your uh, Sky or Virgin, but you're not. Well, I don't know how many people are going to sort of ditch their monthly pay subscription uh, for their main provider and, and have Netflix instead. Not many, I suggest. Well, I mean, I haven't. I mean, I, I, I pay the highest, uh, you know, rate for Sky because I want HD and all the rest of it and all the sports, all the packages. And uh, it is extremely good to now for just uh, catching up in whichever way you want. So I haven't subscribed and I don't think I would want to um, add on another uh, cost. I mean, the other problem I have is that I do do the iPlayer and all the rest of it. I have not very respectable broadband in, in my home. And um, I think that streaming or even waiting for a download, is a bit of an issue. Yeah, you need about have, one meg, a yeah, minimum, have, to make this we work. We have a very creaky uh, network in this uh, country. But it's but not, No, not really. Actually, it's not creaky in this country. Compared to the rest of Europe, actually, the UK's got the best broadband, and, and in fact, that was confirmed by Ofcom in but a recent report. it's not as good as America. It's not as good as America, but that's largely because they've got cable everywhere. It's not broadband. So, look, I mean, broadband will improve, and it's got space to improve, but there's enough people with decent broadband. There's only 12 million customers outside the US at yes, the moment. Okay, so, yeah. you know... No, still, still a long way to go. And broadband growing will obviously further fuel this. I mean, this. I really would like to see House of Cards, but I'm afraid I'm just not going to pay any more. Well, uh, I can tell you, Maggie, the good news is House of Cards, you could hear every word. <laughs> That's uh, good. But the bad news is House of Cards Season 2 was awful. It was one of the worst uh, TV dramas I've ever had the, uh, the displeasure of sitting all the way through. You've I don't know if you it, champs you? saw it, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was, it was disappointing. Wrong? It was, yeah. Well, well I, I can only mention one thing, which was the world's least convincing threesome. That's all I'm going to offer you, Maggie. Oh, dear. You'll have to watch it for yourself. I think Maggie's going to probably pass now on on that comment. I think that's a definite no-no. What's interesting, too, I think, John, though, is... Just last point, go on, Paul, yeah. ...is is how this uh, revolution is driven by content. That's the good news. Actually, this is actually causing investment in more content production. So more writing, more performers. You know, that must be good for the industry. So in that sense, I think it's a positive addition. It was awful. Anyway, right, uh, more after this. Paul and Maggie are still with us, and it's time to go back to the Teddybox, and specifically the future of Channel 5. Its future remains uncertain after Discovery Communications said it was no longer interested in buying Richard Desmond's channel. Desmond, you'll remember, started looking for a buyer last year, and he was said to be looking for around £700 million for the broadcaster, which he bought for just over £100 million in 2010. Nice business if you can get it. Discovery were among the bidders. They were rumoured to have teamed up with Sky, but pulled out last week, leaving MTV owner Viacom one of the few remaining potential buyers. But what have they bid, and will Desmond sell? Or maybe, Paul, he'll just hang on to it. Well, I mean, I think uh, he set a very high price at 700 million. Um, you know, he was clearly uh, you know, on a fishing trip there, but that's fine. The question is whether he's going to sell and whether he gets the money he wants. I saw the Discovery thing as being quite a, a credible bid, actually, because Discovery have been very acquisitive in recent years. And they bought SBS uh, a couple of years ago, which um, is 12 TV channels right across Norway, Sweden and Denmark. And that was a big uh, ticket price, $1.7 billion for that. Um, and at the time, uh, Mark Hollinger, who's the president and CEO of Discovery, said, um, our strategy is to build the most extensive global footprint in media anywhere. So, uh, you know, buying Channel 5 seemed an obvious thing to do. And recently, Discovery um, bought uh, Eurosport, bought a TF1 share of Eurosport, uh, which gave them 133 million households across the world. So, you know, buying Channel 5 for 300 million is quite a small deal comparatively compared to those deals. I was convinced Discovery were going to go for it. Now, clearly, they've fallen out, presumably, on money. Sky, I 
think, as has been reported, won't have an equity stake in the company. But Sky be very interested in selling uh, Channel 5. Um, the more that Sky can um, bring together uh, media properties, the greater its buying power in the market. Uh, and the challenge for Sky's own TV channels is that pay TV always gets less than its fair share of advertising dollars for the ratings it generates. So the more that Sky can get free-to-air bookings, and, and Channel 5 is a good one, that will help it to build its own business as well as obviously using all of those assets. So question now is what happens? Viacom, uh, yeah, poss- possible buyer. I mean, I think Viacom, it makes some sense. But they haven't been doing a great deal of this activity in the past, and it seems a bit odd to add a free TV channel to Viacom's business that's really about pay TV. So it doesn't seem quite as a natural fit uh, as Discovery. Maggie, what do you think is going to happen? I mean, it would be a fascinating story if, if a big pay TV operator with really deep pockets bought Channel 5 and started putting some of their paid content on a free-to-air channel, and that would be, you know, serious competition for, for ITV and, I guess, Channel 4 as well. But, you know, where, where do you see it going? Well, first of all, this story surfaced a year ago because there was some question about whether ITV had been sounded out, if you recall. When Desmond came to the Royal Television Society convention in Cambridge in September, he made a great play of how the company had been formed and, and created. And, of course, you got this sense that he was really the sole proprietor and just dictated everything and ran this integrated operation with his papers, his magazines, promoting Channel 5. So that's on one side. Now what's happened is that the franchises have been renewed, so Channel 5 is at the the maximum point of value it's going to be because it it has an assured medium-term future. And yes, I have seen David Zaslav, the person who runs uh, Discovery uh, Networks, in London a great deal. And I had, like Paul, thought that there would be a quite interesting potential development if it did take on Channel 5, because it would clearly have a lot of content, including factual programming it could put through. Lots of Bear Grylls. Yeah, lots of Bear Grylls. And we also know that Discovery itself is on the American Stock Exchange now, and it's become a very commercial animal. It's very different to the, the Discovery that we knew in the 80s. So it made sense to me. I also thought it would have a potentially big impact on Channel 4, because Channel 4 is, to some extent, a more youthful uh, channel it, it wishes to appeal certainly to youngish uh, men and, and and adults and also of course channel four has tried to increase its buying share in, in the advertising market by taking over other channels to sell including uk tv so all in all the fact that the price has proved too high that they've dropped out may offer some relief actually to the existing uh, terrestrial broadcasters ITV and uh, Channel 4 if in fact we're in the final act of this. The other interesting part about this of course is that Discovery is majority owned by Liberty Media run by John Malone who of course is the big rival to Murdoch so you actually have Malone and Murdoch effectively working together on this bid Um, yet of course Liberty have recently bought Virgin Media in the UK as a huge rival to Sky and so those two are head to head so you have a very interesting sort of soap opera here uh, going on with Malone and Murdoch that might have played out you know to have quite an interesting end game. And of course you know the thing we're not talking about is that the uh, Communications Act of um, 2000 allowed non-European buyers into the old terrestrial TV market it hasn't been tested yet and this was Probably the be a big test first case, test, yeah. which uh, may or may not happen. So, of course, everybody's watching it. Uh, but at the moment, it doesn't look uh, as if we're getting any particular traction. OK, and time now, uh, Maggie, you'll be glad to know for the Media Monkey Quiz, <laughs> uh, which is uh, slightly unusual this week. Cause it's only got one question and there's no right or wrong answer. 
And question number one, the only question. Should the BBC axe Top Gear? No. No. I only ask because uh, it's been in the news again, back on the offensive, uh, you might say, after the programme's Burma special was broadcast in March. During the programme, Clarkson, Jeremy Clarkson, of course, Richard Hammond and James May, built a bridge over the River Kwai. You see what they've done there. And as an Asian man was seen walking along the bridge, Clarkson said, that is a proud moment, but there's a slope on it. And Hammond replied, you're right, it's definitely high on that side. Of course, uh, the producers say they had no idea that slope uh, was an offensive word, a uh, reference to the uh, to the Asian man, and um, have apologised. But, uh, well, you both say no, but, uh, you know, how long can a, can a such a high-profile BBC Two programme, you know, keep on? It's a brand. It. It's, a, it's, a, it's a franchise, and I mean, you know, if you go to other parts of the world, if you go to Korea, Top Gear exists with different presenters. They're Korean. They've host. They've they've hired local presenters. I think it's a a brand that will transcend Clarkson and the current team. I think you know, eventually, it'll be reinvented with a new generation of presenters. And it's a brand the BBC can sell around the world. It's a brand that they recognise, like Doctor Who and so on. So I think it'd be absolutely crazy to drop it. And I asked the question sort of slightly provocatively, of course, but uh, only asked because uh, the complainant said that the BBC should give due consideration to not. Re- Commissioning Top Gear until these matters are addressed uh, in terms of the way that it references other races and nations. Well, you see, I didn't know that that was a racist um, slur, and uh, the the big thing really which attracts a lot of well, like my son who's twenty to Top Gear is, is that it is naughty, it is blokish. Now it's not a show for me, but I can watch it and appreciate that it is done brilliantly. But I'm broad-minded enough to say, oh, for God's sake. I would well, say apologise, we it. made a mistake, it was yeah. an unintentional slur, no, no offence intended, really sorry, move on. Top Gear, it's safe for now. Well, that's it for part two. My thanks to Paul and Maggie. And it's time to talk TV now with The Guardian's TV and radio editor, Megan Connor. Megan, hello. Hello. Now, uh, what we're going to talk about this week, I have three shows listed in front of me, all of which feel like they could fill a podcast by themselves. Uh, what should we start with? Fargo? Fargo, I think, yeah, it's the thing that everyone's talking about in upbeat. America. Let's start on an upbeat note, yeah. Yes, in America and here, um, it's it's gone off with a bang. I was really surprised by it. I hadn't seen the original Coen Brothers film. Get um, out of here. So I, I went into it quite blind, on. really, yeah, indeed, yeah. which I which is what I love to do. I don't like to go into things having read too much about it. And I, was, I just found it very surprisingly funny in places. And um, it's very much sort of pitch black comedy I think and it's got Martin Freeman and uh, Billy Bob Thornton yes in the lead roles yes and And Billy Bob is I think exceptional actually and everyone is kind of talking about how wonderful he is in the role I think the verdict on Martin Freeman is very good but it's kind of in keeping with his usual style Right, I mean that in a very positive. Yeah, it's kind of, I mean, he's less affable than some of the other characters he's played, but um, he's tremendously naturalistic, isn't he, Martin Freeman? Yeah, and I think his accent's quite good. This is a hell of a trend, isn't it? I remember writing a feature when we had to sort of scrabble around for three or four films that were turned into TV series. But since I've written that, I'm not suggesting I was in any way before or ahead of my time. But you know, every it's, it's, it's quicker to list the films that aren't being made into TV series. I and mean, is this a good thing, Megan? I think people are are slightly negative towards things being adapted and reinterpreted because there's a lot of it happening. But this is actually not that much like the film. I think, I mean, the characters have different names. The characters are slightly different. The female lead character, parts of her have kind of been split off into other characters, and the storyline is different. It just has the same sort of feel and tone and weirdness and setting as, as the film. It's a vibe thing, which I think is the cool way to do it. 
Okay, well, I've got to catch up on Fargo. But uh, now, a series I don't have to catch up on, uh, the series that uh, my, my other half describes as that weird thing uh, with the two blokes in Italy. Uh, the Trip to Italy, I believe it's called, uh, with uh, Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon on BBC Two. Yes. Which, uh, now, has it made a triumphant return? I think most definitely. I mean, I couldn't believe it had been three years or four years even since the first series, which was 2010, which kind of shows what an impression it made because it still felt quite fresh in people's memories, I think. And a lot of people are saying it's one of the best comedies ever. But you obviously disagree, John. Well, I kind of, thanks for, thanks for throwing it back to me. I kind of think it suffers from diminishing returns, you know. I mean, I thought the first series was brilliant, had lots to say about sort of, um, I don't know, middle age and relationships. And, you know, it's kind of kind of like a sort of romance road trip that, uh, that, yeah. that I kind of hankered after and still haven't done four years later, as you've reminded me. But this time round, I don't know. It's just, there's only so many impressions of... Uh, you think the, the impressions are tired? I, uh, some of them are funny, but that the first episode with the, with the, when they were talking about uh, Batman and funny Michael Caine. But Christian it went on Bale. forever. It felt like my entire, I felt like I've seen my entire life flash before me. It lasted forever. Yeah. Because you couldn't understand that. And, and suddenly there was an associate director of, I don't know. It's quite self-indulgent, isn't it? And I don't think a lot of people could get away with it. And, I mean... Some people will say that Rob Brydon can't get away with it, but I think it's just enjoyable. It's the thing that I'm enjoying the most on television at the moment. When Rob Brydon, for instance, rings his wife, who presumably isn't really played by his wife in the series, there's a massive clunk, because suddenly (laughs) there's an actor. And boy, does she sound like an actor, no disrespect to her, purely because it isn't his real wife. And Steve Coogan's son turns up on the Skype, presuming not his real son. yeah. You know, obviously, they're, they're, it's not real life, but it's been said that there's a few loose sort of parallels in their lives. But yeah, that's that's kind of the only, Maybe only fake to. part. I'm quite enjoying the whole travel side of it as well, though. Beautiful. Just to watch as kind of a travel series is quite nice in itself. Maybe they're I like, preferred the first series because I could probably afford to go to Northumberland and those places, but <laughs> there's no way currently I, yeah. could, I can even afford to get on a plane, uh, let alone go to the south of, south of Italy. OK, all right, so uh, I'm going to give it more time. We'll return to it. And uh, finally this week, uh, Channel 4's Derek. Yes. Was that a big build-up? Did you see the first, <laughs> Did you see the first series? I saw all I could take. Yeah. All you could take. Yeah. Same same with me. I mean, for anyone that hasn't seen it, um, I'm sure you might have caught some of it, but it's set in a residential home called Broadhill Residential and with Ricky Gervais. Ricky Gervais is kind of playing this sympathetic character not very well, and I think that's therein lies the problem for me is that he just is a massive caricature and I can't see past Ricky Gervais, David Brent that sort of funny guy or that he's doing sort of satire in some way but he sort of stands by this uh idea that what he's doing is is a completely genuine kind character sympathetic look that's what Gervais says it's all about kindness (laughs) the magic of kindness i believe and it's not a sitcom because people's lives have comedy and drama and this is a bit like someone's life is it a mockumentary i don't think he knows what it is any good it's no good we know I'm worried. that I hesitate to criticise it because I'm worried I'm missing out on something but I look around me and, and it appears that no one's getting anything that I'm not yeah a lot of people will stick up for it and are sticking up for it but I think there are just through and through Ricky Gervais fans who he will never do any wrong he's missing Stephen Merchant this is what it's all about yeah and Carl Pilkington with that silly bald cap on his head I mean but we can't finish on Derek we need, to, we need a big upbeat finish uh, Megan what, what, what can you offer listeners we have Happy Valley coming oh, to screen. I really feel better. Sounds like a margarine. It does indeed. Um, it's actually Thanks, a brand new drama from the writer of Last Tango in Halifax. 
Uh, it stars Sarah Lancashire, who's also in that series. The series won a BAFTA. Um, very sort of heartwarming, lovely uh, tale. Happy Valley, on the other hand, is not as happy as it suggests. Uh, and Sarah Lancashire is playing and it's a, not a valley. police woman. Uh, it is set in a valley okay. uh, in Yorkshire. Uh, a drug-ridden valley. I'm not 100% sure of it from the first episode. There's a storyline about a kidnapping which is quite boring. But what stands out for me, as with a lot of Sally Wainwright stuff, is the character. So she wrote Scott and Bailey as well, which had two very strong um, female policewomen at the centre of it. And it's kind of the same here. The first 15 minutes kind of tells you all you really need to know about the character. It's, it's a very good start to the episode, and I think that there will be some potential when there are some other kind of plots built in there. It's going to go on for several weeks, so it's definitely one to watch out for. And on that note, uh, Megan Connor, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all our panellists, who were Paul Robinson, Megan Connor and Maggie Brown. You can leave your thoughts on this week's show on our blog, or you can tweet me at JohnPlunkett149. Media Talk is, as ever, produced by the great Mr Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio. Support for this Guardian podcast comes from Squarespace, providing creative tools that help you bring your ideas to life. Squarespace offers free domain names, customizable designs, drag and drop tools, and 24-7 support. Squarespace also offers seamless e-commerce solutions for you or your small business. Every design automatically includes a unique mobile experience that matches the overall style of your website, so your content will look brilliant on any device. Start your free trial today. No credit card required. As a Guardian podcast listener, you'll get 10% off your new account by using the offer code GUARDIAN.